Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of Swanglinese. In the studio this week, I have the company of Dr. Saliha and I'm very, very excited to speak with her. Welcome, Dr. Saliha. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you because I know of you from your online presence, which is, again, something that I get involved with with my other business. And so I was really looking forward to talking to you to get a better understanding of you as an individual and the amazing stuff that you're doing on the ground here in the UAE. But we'll get to that. What we usually like to do is go back in time to start with um, to the beginning of your professional journey and to give a little bit of insight into who you are as Dr. Saliha, uh, where you started, and again, go back as far as you like or, or not as far as you like, um, to give us an understanding of who you are, some of the things that you've been involved with, uh, and then bringing us right up to date to today and uh, your, your current uh, business, the Lighthouse uh, Center. So uh, take us back in time, Dr. Saliha. Okay, you know, I get asked this question and I always, feel a bit stumped. You would think that I would sort of know how to answer it by now. I never know how far to really go back, but I guess I'll go back to just myself as a child. Um, my, uh, my disposition, who I am as a person has always been an extremely sensitive person. A empath, uh, a highly sensitive person is what I was. A highly sensitive child is what I was. And I remember wanting um, to grow up and be a doctor, a medical doctor. Right. And I found out that, um, that you have to go through gross anatomy <laughs> um, as a doctor. And so I decided that there's no way I was going to do that. Um, and then I told my mom that I would be a psychiatrist, um, also a medical doctor. And my grandfather was the first psychiatrist of Pakistan. And my mom said, be whatever you want to be be whoever you want to be, just don't go into mental health because you will not be able to take it. You are too sensitive and it will crush you. Every day you will come home and you'll be lying in your bed crying. And so I sort of put that away and said, okay, my mom must know, but I always had a rebellious spirit um, and my spirit has always guided me. Fast forward, I went to college, I did my undergraduate degree in anthropology, Chinese, journalism, and these are the things that I studied in my undergrad with the thoughts that I would move into international business. And my father was in international business and it just sounded super sexy and I really thought that that was going to be me. And I graduated from my undergrad and I got a job in marketing. And, and I remember being there and I was actually really good at it. I just knew I had a way. Um, I had a sense of people. I had a sense of what they wanted. And I think that's most important in marketing. Psychology is a big component of that, but knowing the other person and their motivation is also very important. And I think empathy helps with that. Um, but I remember a, a year and a year into that job and I was sitting at my desk one day and thought, oh my God, I have to do this for the rest of my life. I have to tell people things they don't need for the rest of my life. 
And in that moment, I kid you not, I got up, I walked over to my boss's office and I said, I quit. I had no idea where I was going, what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. And I was like a rising star in that company, but I just knew that that was not going to be me. So I don't suggest that people do that. You should have a backup plan, but I literally just walked out. I had saved enough money to know that that's not, I I just, I was going to be fine, but I couldn't sort of know that it was not right for me and still be there. Mm -hmm. Then I actually moved and I started, I decided I was going to be a dentist and I, um, I started taking my prelim courses for dentistry. And I remember sitting in organic chemistry and thinking, uh, these letters don't make up words. I don't understand this. And really, I know it sounds pretty flaky, but that's kind of, I was like, I can't, I can't put myself through this for the next four years. And so I listened to that part of me and I said, I'm not going to be a dentist. And I remember feeling lost in that moment. And my sister coming to me and saying, what's going on with you? And I just said, you know, I really just don't know what I want. I don't know what I like. I don't know what I should do with my life. And she said, okay, well, tell me what you love. And I said, I love stories. I've been an avid reader my whole life. Um, I, I love reading stories. I love listening to stories. Okay, what else do you love? I like taking care of people. I like I, you know, I got nominated the most caring person in my high school. And I was one of those people that just showed up wherever someone needed to be cared for. (laughs) So she said, you like stories and you like caring for people. You should be a psychologist. And I said, okay. And I remember (laughs) my undergraduate year, like I remember in in my undergraduate um, studies, I hated psychology. It was like my worst class ever. And that's why I went into anthropology because anthropology is the study of cultures. I get to read about people and that's what I wanted, not abnormal psychology. And like, you know, it it was just, yeah, it was so not for me. And so um, in that moment, just like that, I decided I was going to do psychology and through my psychology and I got, I applied, I got admitted into a PsyD program in Arizona Um, and through my psychology program, I studied real estate. I studied uh, kinesiology and was pers- a personal trainer. I mean, I literally did a, studied massage <laughs> because Why? I thought it was interesting. Um, and so I really quite random curiosity. Um, and for me, this has been my journey. It's not been a straightforward. This is what I knew I always wanted to be when I grow up. Nope. Um, and I always tell my parents uh, and anyone else who asks that the day I know the day, the moment I know that this is not my life's calling, something shifts in me, I will stop doing what I'm doing. And so me, I have now been in this, studying this and, and being in it for the last 17 years. And I have never, ever felt like I was working. I literally felt like, and I never, it's weird, right? I, I, you it's your work. You get up and you go to work. But when you live out your life's calling, vocation comes from the word vocatus, vocatus Latin word being calling. It never feels like work. It's work, but it never feels like that. It sounds so cliche, but I know it because I live it and I've worked before in my life. But now I know that 
this is my this is my calling. So here I am. Then I moved to Dubai 13 years ago. I worked in a private practice. Um, I knew that I had way more, way more inside of me than to do just this one-on-one work. Um, the, you know, the, the clinic that I was working in was not really sort of grounded in um, community service. For me, community education and community service was really important. And so I, that's where I decided that um, I needed to be in the community, with the community, talking to the community, teaching the community. Um, and when I le- went looking from here to there and found where nowhere to go, um, I decided that I was going to start my own place. You, so. You're going to make it. You're going to build it then. Yeah. <laughs> so just before we get into that before, because you're saying that some of your education was in the States and then 13 years ago, you moved to this part of the world in UAE. What was the driving factor for that? So when I moved to the UAE, so um, my brother was living here. My parents lived in Malaysia and I just always knew that there was some part of me that needed to be in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. I know that my soul belongs to the Middle East. I just know that to be true. Um, I was actually, um, my first few years um, in the UAE. So I was conceived in the UAE. My mom flew mm. for um, to Pakistan to give birth to me because that's where we're from. And then she flew back six weeks later and I spent the first three, four years of my life in the UAE. And that was it. I never came back after that. But okay. I, when I got here, and you know, it's really interesting, Barry, because I've been around the world, I would say, and I've lived in many different countries and I've lived in many different states, even within the United States. And there was always a restlessness inside of me and agitation. Right. Like I was not at peace. Like this isn't it. This isn't it. This isn't it. And when I got to the UAE, I was like, this is it. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be here. And it was, I think if you listen to that part of you, it really does know. And for me, that part is very loud. I don't have to listen. It screams. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. um, but this is it. This is my home. It's my soul's right. for sure. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And it's interesting that you say that, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily listen to that part of themselves where they just feel, well, I, I guess it's, I've just got that itch that I should travel now and I've got to go on to somewhere else. And and they, they go and then they get to the next place and they, they settle or uh, inverted commas, they settle for a couple of years and they're like, oh, I seem to be a bit uneasy again. I think I'm better move. And they, and some people love it. They do love, genuinely love to, to move around to different places. But I think in many, many cases, people just haven't found that place that does resonate with them. That's like, huh. And there, the, wherever there was or whatever I was looking for it, it's, I just feel it right now. And so that's really interesting that that's happened for you in the UAE, maybe because there's that intrinsic bit, having been here as a very young baby, that you there's that calling bringing you back and that you're here. And so I guess that plays into this idea of um, your decision to start the, um, the lighthouse was around community and being in the community and that you had that feeling that this must be your community then, just that feeling within you. Yeah. 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 And you know, I, I've always been a little bit like, uh, I, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me when people say, oh, you started a business. Hmm. I, I never saw it like that. I don't know a thing about business, to be honest. Um, when I was first starting out and I needed sponsors, cause you needed a local sponsor at that time when I started, mm-hmm. um, 
there were people that said, you don't know a thing about business. We can't sponsor this and have our name on it. And so I know I don't know a thing about business because I never studied it, but I, I never saw it like that. I, I just said that listen, there's a need for something and I think I can meet that need. And if that means it was a, if that's how a business works, then yeah, okay, I started a business, but I don't really, um, I don't really see myself as an entrepreneur. Mm. I never, because I didn't see it as an opportunity, really. I just saw it as a need. Mm. And I meet that need. And, you know, uh, Philip Zimbardo out of the U.S. Um, researcher, he talks about um, heroes. He talks, not to say that I am a hero in, you know, with a cape or whatever, but there is something about that we all as human beings have the potential to be a hero. And a hero is different in the sense that they see where the need is and they just show up. They don't ask why or how or what. They just see that someone needs help and they just show up without knowing what the risks might be or even considering what the risks might be. And in that sense, more than an entrepreneur, I saw myself as seeing, um, as being a servant of this community and, um, and, and showing up and saying, this is something that I'm gonna take ownership for. That is my responsibility. So in that sense, I see myself as a servant of this community. Sure. Not well, as yeah. sure. No, I, I, and I appreciate that, that viewpoint as well, because I think it is if you're providing something that is of service and that actually goes across all businesses that uh, there's a lot of people out there that say that if you're actually uh, in servitude to your audience, whoever they may be, that you're, you, you're, it's still a business because there's a transaction happening, but actually what you're delivering is something that is almost necessary uh, for, for, for people that were not able to find that anywhere else and are then drawn to people who are genuinely, A, good at what they do, and B, doing it, it sounds cliche as well, for the right reason, to help, to actually help people. And whether that is a product or a service that you're selling or whether it is, um, you know, turning up. And I talk about this in some of the things I do in schools with, with students and about this whole idea of being a hero is that they can be an everyday hero to their peers when they see things like cyberbullying happening or negative scenarios uh, unfolding, that if they have the, the courage and the self-belief, which I also enforce, not enforce, but I empower them to believe that they have, that when they do stand up and say something, they are being a hero because they see that there's a requirement for somebody to say, hey, I don't think this is right and uh, I don't want you to carry on doing that. And, and we don't do it a lot. And you know, <laughs> me talking about this seems just ironic based on who I'm talking to, but this idea of how we perceive the um, you know, the excuses for not getting involved when we see something that's that's wrong and and it's self-preservation to a certain extent. And it's, well, I don't want to become the victim of, of whatever is going on there. I don't want them to turn their attention on me. And these are all natural reactions. But, you know, so many people, especially young people who want to say, you know what, I do see it's wrong. I don't see myself as a hero doing this, but I'm still going to go and stand up and say, look, let's just stop that. That's wrong and so forth. And I think it's really so important to try and empower more people to, think that way because I think that I don't know whether it's true to say this but my feeling is that everybody has got a lot more cynical over the years and that they're less likely to actually do something in service of somebody there always seems to be 
an angle or there's always got to be, well, what's in it for me? Um, and they, you know, this is even taught in, in sales and marketing now is you've got to say, well, what's in it for me as a customer to you? And if you're not providing that, then why am I going to be a customer? And again, I'm not entirely sure if I agree with that standpoint. I agree with understanding what your audience needs, but I think if you come at it from a, a, a a, a position of service. And it's something that I, I really uh, admire about Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk as well, who talks about this idea that in that leadership roles that no, your employees and people don't work for you, you work for them to get a better experience for them so that they can then deliver to the audience at the end of the day. And so I really admire that you've gone into this side of things as well, based on, you know, your, your beginnings and not saying, yeah, this is definitely the path I'm going straight down to become this. Um, but and, and in spite of, you know, you're not looking at it as a business, at the end of the day, you have to have certain things in place in order to, to do what you do right on the ground here in the UAE. Um, and how, how did that work at the beginning? Because you were saying, oh, I don't know anything about business. There's partners, uh, you know, sponsors telling me, oh, we can't do that because you don't that. So how did you, in the end, get, get sort of set up, as it were, so that you could represent as the lighthouse on the ground here as, a, as, an, as an entity to help the community? It's, it's, I wish it was a compelling story, but <laughs> I, did it. I did it. And I mean, if you see my, you know, cause we're supposed to, um, we're supposed to turn in a profit and loss type of document when we're getting a trade license. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And so I made one of those and, and, and Dr. Tara, when she sort of co-founded it with me, and we both just sat down. We both don't know a thing about this. And we just worked on it. And, and when we first started the Lighthouse, we tried to bring other people on to the team. And we would say that we are going to serve the community. We are going to do free education. We are going to do free support groups. And I had this whole sort of, you, you know, utopic sort of idea as to what I was going to have as a business business inverted commas um and um and nobody believed me <laughs> nobody believed right. me they said listen man you're trying to do way too much free work how are we going to make money and i said okay well we're going to make money and we are going to see one-on-one -on -one clients this is where our billing will happen and then all the money that we make is actually going to fund all the non-profit stuff or not-for-profit stuff um, nobody believed me. And for the first two, two and a half years, nobody joined our team. And then there was one person who came and then another person who came. And then slowly we started to, okay, well, maybe these guys are onto something. But from day zero, I was in the community. I was at schools. I was in people's homes. I was in churches. I was in mosques. I was anywhere where anyone will have me talking about parenting and mental health at a time when it was like absolutely not talked about. I was working with reporters talking about divorce and childhood stress. And this was non-existent 13 years ago. So, so this is how um, it was almost a mission-led development. And the mission was to make mental health accessible to people everywhere and in a large scale. And that's where I did my talks. And I remember going and 
Um, it's St. Mary's Church with an auditorium full of people talking about parenting. And I mean, literally everywhere from Karama to like Abu Dhabi, I'll go anywhere. And that's what I did. I went everywhere and slowly the word sort of took on. Um, the trust was starting to form within the community because I, to date, have not charged for a single talk that I have done for the public, not a single mm-hmm. talk in 10 years. So if you want to call me over and say, hey, Sal, I need you to talk to this community, I'll do it and I don't charge for it. Even when they say we would like to give you money, I say, we please donate it to a charity. And I'm very happy that thank you for the offer, but I would like you to. And so they then donate it to a charity, whatever they were thinking about paying me. So in that sense, I've stayed very true to that commitment of mine. Um, And I think people sense that and they trust Mm. that. Um, And slowly the the mission, there were other people that believed in the mission and then more and more and more. And eventually we started recruiting, I would say maybe five or six years ago from overseas. And that's when we started to bring in talent from around the world to UAE um, to be now one of the largest practices in the region because there are people who believe in the mission. And our mission is clear that you will provide non um you know you will you will do work for free that's just part of your job description so you will see your clients and you will get paid for that but there will be a big component of what you do which is going to be in service of your colleagues and in service of your community and that can be doing podcasts such as these going on radio writing articles doing instagram anything that's going to serve the community but you also have to be available to your team members and to your colleagues in some way. So that's our culture. We go off the four C's, the clinic, the client, the community, and the colleague. And it was very organic. Um, Sometimes people ask me, what is your vision? I say, I don't have a vision. I just have a very clear mission. And the vision changes according to the community needs. But one thing is clear is that I want mental health accessible and I want to destigmatize it. I want to normalize it. And that is the mission I'm on. And my yeah. team is on the lighthouse. Which is a fantastic mission, I think. And, and it's also one I'd like to get some further input from you about because over the years, the, this subject, um, as you mentioned previously, it, 10 years ago, 13 years ago, when you came over here, it was the, um, again, the taboo subject. It was not a subject to be talked about Generally, it wasn't something that would be a topic that cropped up at dinner or within family units when it needed to be. And now we've seen the last decade, things have changed and so forth. But actually, how much have we seen it change, in your opinion, in, in terms of the my exposure to this? Is that it seems to be that it's more talked about now. Um, but what what sort of percentage would you say or how much has it become more of a destigmatized uh, topic and how much more work is still ahead of you, I guess, is the real question. <laughs> um, I think there's still a lot of shame associated with it. I think people are at breaking point and that's why we're talking about it. We're not right. talking about it because it's a good thing to talk about. We're talking about it because we are in a desperate place and mm-hmm. people are really, um, People just are not feeling very good. Loneliness is at an all-time high. Depression is the number one form of disability globally. 
you know, suicide, you know, every 40 seconds, someone commits suicide. Like this is, these are real things happening in the world and people are deeply suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, with the advent of technology, I do think that there is a lot more awareness. And so people are, um, oh, okay, well, mental health is happening and mental illness is happening. But when it hits them, they are going to deny it. They are going to refuse it. They're going to fight with it. It's going to be absolutely the most difficult thing for them to pick up the phone and say, I need to go talk to, to someone. And especially if you are a man. And so for me, I have seen this is that they really wait till breaking point. And, and, and that's not when we want you to come. We want you to go just like when you go to the dentist, you don't wait till there's a root canal that needs to happen. You go for a six month cleaning and you try to do some hygiene every day as it relates to your dental health. This is the kind of mentality we want people to have for their mental health. We are far from it. However, I feel very hopeful that when governments start to talk about mental health and well-being, that change is, we, we've come this far, it's not going to take us this long to get where we need to get. It's right. with the advent of technology and governments taking this on board and leaderships of big corporations or corporations or companies, small, big, whichever one, when they start to say, hey guys, we talk about mental health here. And if you're struggling, you need to talk about it then change happens very quickly. We just mm -hmm. are not there just yet. Not just yet. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that that is also the case because I see a lot of people, I see a lot of people struggling with this. And I also see a lot of people unaware that they are struggling with this. And I think that's perhaps a big, big um, education point, if you like, especially for men who I guess have been brought up in the, the, the whole way that, well, it's, it's viewed upon as a weakness to ask for help, all of the, you know, what would be termed toxic ma masculinity and have opinions on how far the problem we see today with technology is that we seem to see people at both ends of the spectrum shouting loudest. So you're either this or you're that. And actually it's, there's something in the middle where people aren't shouting loud enough that we're not hearing to say, hang on, maybe you can both be right in this. It's not about one or the other. It's about this idea that, well, different people, different situations, but actually there's still an outlet somewhere for you, male, female, whatever, to come and talk about. And I'd like your opinion on two things, really. The, the advent of technology has so many positives, but I also, from some of the work I do with anti-cyberbullying, it has created a number of negatives. Um, and whether you, and again, not naming names or anything, but how much of that you've seen in your work within the community on the ground here in the UAE, because I've always found it quite difficult to really... Um, get a true representation of that. There's lots of statistics that come from around the world about the issues, like you said, with things like suicide in the US, directly linked with the introduction of the smartphone and so forth. Have you seen a similar kind of correlation on the ground here in the UAE with the kind of scenarios that you are involved with, that the, that the clinic is involved with, and that the audiences that you're talking to, perhaps? For sure, for sure. Um, there has been a rise in loneliness a rise in depression, a rise in lack of community, um, a rise in lack of sort of self-awareness. Mm. Um, these things are fundamental to our well-being, a lack of being in the moment, um, a lack of 
mindfulness in the sense that heartfulness. Um, so these things are absolutely fundamental to our well-being. And what technology has done, and the smartphone specifically, has created um, apps which are highly, 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 more than we can imagine, addictive. They call it engagement, but it is actually another word for addiction, high engagement. Um, they've created these dopamine feedback loops that have us hooked. Most of us are hooked. And then you and I are sitting together, but I am totally fragmented and I'm not having a deep, soulful conversation with you because there's a phone in between me and you. And that disconnect is between us. We know from the one of the longest studies done to date by Harvard that the number one indicator of happiness is social connection. And that social connection, we have created an illusion of a connection, which is just another form of comparison to each other rather than connecting to each other. While it does feel good, while it does feel good to have people that I'm connecting to from all over the world because of social media, the costs outweigh the benefits of that. Right. Um, and, and I think this is where when it's unmanaged and people are unaware of how addictive it is and they don't have these guards in place to protect against that level of um, sort of engagement or you know addiction, then I think we can get sucked into the virtual world and lose touch with our reality and our sense of groundedness in this moment. And I, I had one experience recently because of something that was happening on social media. I found myself very sucked into sort of social media activism. And, and I literally now know what it feels like to lose contact with my body, to lose contact with my environment, to lose contact with the people that are sitting exactly right next to me, to have you talking to me, but only the reels in my mind playing and not actually engaging with you. So this kind of derealization, depersonalization, disassociation, it was very disturbing, Barry. I, mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it was scary how how dissociated i was and this is how a lot of people are living i know because i'm a psychologist but most people don't know how to bring themselves back and into the present moment they don't know yeah. how to do that no exactly and i think that's such a huge huge problem because uh, like i say you're, you're a psychologist and an adult and and we're only able to do that because of that but our children are being sucked into the same vortex and yet we're still we still got the expectation that they should be able to get themselves out of it and i think that that's really it's not fair on them uh, and that's why we have to really help to educate ourselves as the adults in this in this scenario from a digital perspective to then be able to actually help our children because i think you're so right that this they've been designed to drag us in they've been designed to addict us the, you know the the way that they engage with us is is um, designed to make us hang around for as long as possible. And again, we as adults 
all of us, I'm sure, uh, can relate to being sucked into the rabbit hole and watching this video and saying this and commenting on that and then suddenly thinking, whoa, that's an hour, disappeared. What was I doing? And yet we still have expectations for our eight-year-old, 13-year-olds to say, oh, no, I know when I've had enough <laughs> and, and I'll get off it. And of course they don't. And, and that's why it's so important um, to, 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 to continue this educational journey. But on that note, how big an impact then has has the last sort of 12 to 14 months had on that with COVID effectively forcing more time in front of these devices and platforms? I mean, how big an impact has that really had in, in your experience? I mean, I've heard both things where people, you know, were able to find a rhythm and a routine to their lives, especially in the Middle East, because a lot of people traveled for work. And mm. so they didn't have a good rhythm to their life. They didn't have connections to the people in their life because they were on one plane or another. When we live in the Middle East, we serve the whole world. Mm. We serve the East, we serve the West, and you don't have good sleep patterns. You don't have... So I think in some sense through Zoom, um, work will never, ever be the same again. We don't have to travel to London for a meeting or California for a meeting. We'll just zoom in at that time and, I, yeah. and it will serve, you know, emissions and um, all sorts of other things as well. Um, so it will be good for the climate as well as for our well-being. But on the flip side, I have seen that, um, like I said, a lot of people are very disassociated from their bodies. And, you know, when I sit in front of a computer, and I have been since eight this morning, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and I just sit and I maybe move and get some water and I sit back down, and I'm not having any energy exchange with another human being. It's just, we're just becoming super efficient, but we're losing our humanity in the process. Mm -hmm. We don't realize that when we sit together in a meeting room and a little bit of banter happens and somebody laughs and I sense a little bit of your energy or you make a joke and I'm looking at you and not looking at nine people at the same exact time, it puts a lot of pressure on the system. And it takes, you know, we are losing a lot when we are not together. So I think in some sense, um, people, people might opt for Zoom for a little while, but at some point they'll realize we need each other and we need to be next to each other. And we aren't, we aren't robots. We, mm. we need to be physically around each other, around that table, around that coffee machine, around that water cooler, um, having lunch together, seeing each other's faces. This is important to us. And I think kids and adults have really suffered this year from that. Mm. I agree. Yeah, well, this, yeah, and that's the thing that I, I've had this conversation a couple of times that in some cases we won't really understand the full extent of what's happened until, let's say, five years, 10 years down the line. And um, my, my example is that at that point, there's going to be medical doctors looking at those people at that age and then looking and going, whoa, look at this part of the brain. It's gone either it's completely gone or it's grown by so many times because of the experiences of, of what we're going through now. Because I think, like you say, a lot of us have lost that, are missing that connection with other human beings. And I hope, I hope, I'm crossing my fingers that in the not too distant future, we can at least get that. So that Zoom is a great tool for, for like you say, there's long distance meetings rather than flying halfway across the world. Is it really necessary? 
it is if you're not getting that contact anywhere else. But if we are able to, at least on the ground here, have those kind of things, then, okay, well, then I can Zoom that call for California or London because I don't actually want to fly all the way there anyway. And there isn't really a need for me to do that because this is where these tools and this technology really does come into its own because it's great. But not if, like you say, every day, eight hours a day, this is it because then you miss miss that that element. And it's... Uh, I see it all over the place and it's, it's, it scares me a little bit, especially when it comes to the whole digital world. And I'm a big proponent and fan of the digital world, but I'm also at the back of my thinking, yeah, there's uh, there's going to be fallout from this um, yeah. and we don't know what that's going to be. And uh, I, I, I hope I, that it's not too bad. <laughs> sorry. Um, I think it's important for us to stay close to our humanity. Remember who you are and mm. remember, what got you here through the eons that we've been on this planet, right? We made it this far, evolutionarily speaking, mm. based off of some things. We ate from the nature, we were in the sun, we sat with the sun, we went to sleep a certain amount of time, we were around our tribe. Like, these are some fundamentals. Like, mm. don't compromise that, you know, move for your work. Um, it's basic, actually, if you look at what the body needs, and what you know, like, if we if we just stay to the fundamentals of things, and use technology to um, supplement that, I think we will be okay. Uh, But I think evolutionarily speaking, the people who are being used by technology, evolution will sort them out. But people who know how to use technology, are going to be the winners of the next mm-hmm. generation. But I, I, yeah. it's quite I, compromised right now, to be honest. Yeah, well, that's that's my wonder around it because I'm thinking, I think that's absolutely true. But my, my belief would be that there's got to be so many people, so many more people that are being used by it than are understanding how to use it, which would... You know, some whatever you want, those people that are talking about these theories that that would potentially thin out the world population quite drastically because so many are just uh, stuck in the loop. They are completely addicted to it and they are not aware that they are. They will argue until they're blue in the face that they're not. Um, and 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 that's just so unaware of it that there's no there's no way of getting through to them in some cases because they're so ingrained with the the social channels and so forth. But I also know that the worst place possible to have any kind of conversation is in the social space if it's on on any subject that you've got differing opinions because it doesn't it's not a conversation that people are learning from it's usually two groups of people shouting at each other about how they are right or how the other one is right or how and and so nothing is actually being learned at that point it's just a a shouting match and whoever believes they can shout loudest in inverted commas wins um but actually nothing gets exchanged nobody wins out of that situation and i don't know whether it's just because of what i do but i just seem to see that happening a lot and that that's why it really would worry me that your statement there which i do agree with there would be so many more people on that side of not knowing that they are uh, being used by the technology as it were well i think this is where we need to educate the parents, parents need to understand that there are windows of sensitivity and windows of opportunity in a child's developmental stage phase that Mm -hmm. they go through. Zero to three and then the adolescent brain is going to be where you want to protect that brain from certain 
things because the brain is more susceptible and more vulnerable at that time. This is not when you want to be introducing technology at the degree that it's being introduced Mm. at. I have three teenagers and I have a six-year-old, so I have four children and um, I don't have a smartphone for them. And I will, I will go to the end of the earth. I will send you to Mars if, I, if you would like to go and I will pay for it, but I will not give you a smartphone because I just know that your brain cannot take this right now. And it's not just the WhatsApp and the, but it's also the social media. And it's not just the dopamine addiction that happens through social media, but it's absolutely, um, shatters any form of self-esteem that they might actually develop or any self-awareness that they might have at this time. So I'm going to protect you for as long as I can from this. And of course, I know that when you're 19, 20, 21, you're going to go off and you're going to do this. But at least in those vulnerable times, I protected you. Mm. 50% of all mental health problems developed by the age of 14, 50%, 75% by the age of 23, 24, 75%. I'm going to, I'm going to play with my odds here and say, Mm. if I, if I can lock in some good habits at this age, at a younger age, where I make you reflect Mm. about who you are, I help you cultivate emotional intelligence. I have you cultivate coping skills through different stressors. I have you engage in sports and, you know, athletics. I'm, I'm grounding you in some good habits, which will then carry on in life. I never had TV growing up when I was younger. My mom and dad, we just had one television and we were allowed to watch like two shows on it, but I didn't, I didn't have a habit of watching TV. I, to this day, I don't have TV. My kids don't have TV. Like it just, this is just not, we have a TV, but we watch Apple TV. We'll watch a movie and then we turn it off. It's not mm-hmm. this sitting around in front of television for hours upon hours. These are habits you sort of set in at a young age. So for me, my dissertation was in parenting. I really believe that if we are going to change anything, we're going to change it through teaching parents. Because sometimes we think that this object is benign. And for the most part, technology can be, but not this technology, like not, 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 not social media. It's not benign. It can really damage people. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it is. And it's a hundred percent on, on, on the same page as I am when it comes to talking to, to, uh, to people about the, the digital space and our, our focus over the last two years has, has completely turned to mum and dad. Um, because we realize that it's mom and dad that has the most questions, um, has the least amount of knowledge, not least of which because many of us did not have this when we were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, or 14. So we can't actually even fall back on, oh, yeah, I know what it was like, because we don't. We have no clue what it was like. And and yet we still then put our, our sort of our own inbuilt thoughts onto well I know I remember being 13 and it wasn't that bad or this is how we used to do it and this and it's just so irrelevant to the children of the next generation because they're looking at yes as mom and dad saying not only oh wow you're just old and and you know a different generation that wow you really don't understand me as a as a child in the digital world everything that you seem to be saying to me is not showing me that you really 
are that interested in my life as a, as a digital native or interested in what I'm doing. And that's, that's where I feel this gap is getting wider because more and more young people are not seeing their parents as the resources that they need them to be right now. And, and mum and dad are some cases pushing them away even further because of how they're reacting to some of these situations. Because as a parent, we think Snapchat's a waste of time and what on earth is the attraction of Instagram and who cares about TikTok? And every time we say that like that, this is to them everything. And so we're dismissing their world and by definition, dismissing them. And of course, then we wonder why they don't talk to us. <laughs> and, uh, and you say, well, why would they? Why would they look at us as that person to talk to about anything when we haven't shown them any indication that we would be that resource for them? And I, I am so in line with what you're saying that the focus has to be on helping mum and dad to increase their awareness of this digital space, increase their self-awareness in some cases, you know, myself included here, to understand the nuances of the world that we live in right now. And every time I talk to children about the digital space, when I'm talking to students, I come away from these sessions having learned a lot from them because some of the things that we think they're doing, they're not. And some of the things they are doing, we can't even perceive that they would turn or utilize these technologies for those reasons, both good and bad. And uh, I think it's really an, an interesting angle to, to be on because I think it's so important that this transitionary time that we're in as society is, is everybody's trying to figure it out in terms of how do I parent my child? And the child is like, well, how do I be a child to my parents? And how do I operate in this digital world? Because, and this is what I've seen a few times, those 13 year olds look at mum and dad and say, I know more about this than you do. And you're supposed to be the air quotes adult in this situation. And yet I, I don't understand my role right now because I seem to know more about it than you do. Right. And, uh, right. and I think that you're right, that the only way around that is education and awareness and continued. Um, and again, a complete admiration for you in terms of the sessions that you do um, in this community to, to, on all subjects, because again, you've got a plethora of subjects that you cover under the banner of the Lighthouse um, you know, Centre. And it just... I have a, a particular passion for that cyber safety side of things, but there's so many issues right now that need attention um, that I can only see the lighthouse having to grow bigger and bigger to cover them all. Um, and is from, from that perspective, is that something that you foresee for, and I know you don't see it as a quote business, um, but is expansion something that you're, 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 you're interested in doing for the lighthouse center over the, over the near future? Yes. I, I believe that, the need is high and the need is just getting bigger. And so where there is a need, we will be there. And if that means we have to expand and grow the team. Um, we've been hiring since the very first day we opened our doors. We never stopped hiring. We never said we have enough people. Mm. So it's 10 years now and our ad has been on LinkedIn for 10 years. And, our ad, you know, and we've worked with recruiters for 10 years. And we will continue to work until we we keep, you know, building a team that serves the need of this community. So, yeah, I do believe that expansion will happen. And I think now with technology and um, telehealth, we might be serving more than the mm -hmm. UAE community, but even the larger region. So, yeah, yeah we're here wow. and we're, we're going to be growing and um, expanding to serve those needs. 
Indeed, which I think is also another example of the positive use of the technology. This the idea of telehealth or this online consultation where you can service a wider audience is it is a positive use of the technology. It's not, and I think it's really important to not demonize the technology so much because there are positive utili- utilization for it. We just have to be conscious of that and that not let it take us away and that we control it rather than the other way around. And I think to supplement that, when you are, for example, Wednesdays are days where I really am back to back from you know early morning to the evening on tech. So on Thursday, I'm going to make sure that the first thing I do is I'm with my horses, I'm in the stables, I'm in the dirt, I'm in the, you know, um, I'm really with the earth to ground myself. So I do that three, four times a week. I go to the beach, I go to the horse, I go to the, you know, nature and, and, and being very conscious that I have to neutralize something back again. Something has been activated and I have to neutralize that the only thing that will do it is nature. And so I have to go back into nature to balance the effects of what this might have done to me. So, and and there's a lot of research that's coming out about how the more um, sort of the modern man's illness is related to his disconnect to the earth and the earth actually is a mass, mass resource for electrons that actually neutralize some of this, uh, the impacts of inflammation, chronic fatigue, et cetera, et cetera, that are a result of us living in buildings and being on technology and being um, disconnected to the earth. So that's how I would, people always wonder like, what do you, what should I do if I feel dissociated? Go to the earth, go to the earth and it will bring you back home to you. I know it sounds cheesy and it sounds super simple, but actually the most beautiful and difficult things these days are actually the most simple and simple does not mean easy. And, and I think this is where people think that simple and easy is the same. The more simpler it is, the more difficult it is for us these days. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, it's a it's a very interesting um, area, and I think you know I'd, I'd love to talk about this for, for a lot longer. But I'm very conscious of your time, and also for for people listening in, we try to keep these uh, episodes to a, a relatively short length. And so, in line with what you've just said, because I think a that's a, a brilliant sort of takeaway for people, first of all. But I always like to un- uh, end the, uh, the the episodes with a, a specific question in terms of um, resources. Um, and again, I know that you don't view your, your business as a business, um, but is there anything that you would recommend? And actually, it doesn't have to be for the business, but we, we talk to um, a lot of uh, people like yourself who are effectively leaders in the community. You're doing things, you're, you're uh, providing a service, I always like to ask them if there's some sort of resource that you would recommend either from a business perspective or from a self perspective, you know, that, that you would say, you know what, go and check this out. And it can be a book, it can be a podcast, it could be a tool, it can be a process, anything at all. Uh, what would you recommend? Um, when I was 18 years old, I learned how to manage my time. I hmm. learned through just this one sheet of paper that was given to me in our community college, where the hours began at 8 a.m. and they went to 10 p.m. and each hour was a block. So like a Google calendar, but on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. That was a life-changing moment for me. 
Um, I'm a mother of four children. I manage one of the largest practices in the, the region when it comes to mental health. Um, I'm a wife. My in-laws live with me. My parents live right behind me. My brother lives right next to them. Like I have a very full life. I still manage to exercise three times a week, ride my horses three times a week, you know, take care of my physical health, my mental health. I have therapy two times a week. Like these are all a lot of things that I'm mm. you know, having to do. How do you do it all? And if you are not, you know, intentional and deliberate about your time, if you do not know, if I ask you, what are you doing tomorrow morning at 7 a.m.? And it's just an empty box. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to that time. You're going to spend it on social media. You're going to probably sleep in a little bit late. You're going to be roaming around watching TV, watching the newspaper. And this is how people spend half their days. So what I would say to people is that we have way more time than we think. When people say, I don't have time. I'll show you where your time is. You have time. And show me how you spend. And who said this? Van Gogh or somebody important said, tell me how you spend your time and I will tell you what will become of you. And this for me is the number one thing. If you do not know how you spend your time, if you, if you cannot look back yesterday and say, what did I do at three? What did I do at four? What did I do at five? You don't don't make big dreams and have big hopes and make big plans. You will not serve anyone nor yourself. Um, life management is time management. Um, stress management is time management. Dream accomplishment is only through time management. So that's what I would say to people is that forget all the books and forget all of these other things that you might listening to podcasts, make your time sheet, batch it, do task batching and time blocking Done. and your life will change. And you will see that you have a whole lot more time than you think. It's, it's, I mean, a, it's fantastic advice. It's something that I try and do myself. Um, my calendar is like that, but there are some days where I don't do it. And it's something that I've only started doing recently because you're absolutely on the money when you don't have something in there, that time goes and it, you don't do anything. And then when you look back and you think, what did I do? <laughs> wasted it effectively, just wasted it. And so, yeah, very, very, very valid advice. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much, uh, Dr. Slea, for, for your time uh, on, on the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. It really was my pleasure to speak with you and for everybody listening in thank you very much for tuning in as always uh, we would appreciate your feedback and if there's anybody that you would like us to talk to just drop us a line at wishlist at swanglinese.rocks or drop us a line on social media thank you very much and we'll see you on the next one thanks so much for listening to this episode of swanglinese with your hosts barry lee cummings and oscar and we'll catch you next time